0: Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh,
1: joined by Julie Henningsen. Hi, Julie. How are you today? Doing great. Excited to hear what you've got in store for us today. Today, we have
0: an incredible tale of resilience and determination to share with you. It's a story that embodies the human spirit's unyielding will to survive against all odds. The focus today is on Bill Durden a man who faced the ultimate test of survival on open waters. Join as we recount the harrowing journey of Bill Durden and his remarkable fight for survival when he landed himself in open water without a life vest or any other means to make it out alive, but his military training and strong will.
1: Oh, another water survival story. These are my favorite. I can't wait to hear about Bill's adventure.
0: Yeah, adventure, he might not agree with that word in terms of describing his experience. But uh, but yes, I agree. I like these two. Just because they're so terrifying, the thought of being out there without any means, right?
1: Oh, yeah. They really just make you cringe and thankful that the story isn't your own. Anything involving the open water, that's, Yeah.
0: Unrelenting is the word to describe being out in the water. Bill Durden, a gentleman in his early 60s, was a FedEx pilot and previous Navy pilot who embarked on the first day of grouper season on June 1st aboard his 22-foot Grady White vessel. Greeted by warm, clear Wednesday weather, he had easy access to the water because his dock sat behind his vacation home on the Homo Sasa River, north of Tampa, Florida. So he had direct access to the Gulf of Mexico. He and his wife enjoyed their time in Florida and typically resided in Reno, Nevada. On this beautiful day, Bill chose to venture out alone without a fishing partner. He'd done this a number of times before and didn't really think a lot about it. He cruised along in flip flops and did not wear a life jacket. He got pretty lucky early on and he pulled into grouper fish then he kept going on, and he was venturing approximately 25 miles offshore. He deployed his two fishing lines to trawl the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, sometime between 1 and 1.30 in the afternoon, although he couldn't quite pinpoint the exact time. One of his fishing rods showed signs of activity. The braided line tightened as he realized he'd hooked onto something substantial. Despite the intense strain on the line, Durden was determined not to lose the rod because he'd only used it once before. And that's kind of the moment where all conscious thought and consideration went out the window.
1: Oh, I'm just picturing where this could go from here. What could possibly be on the other end of that line? Is it going to capsize the boat? There's so many possibilities in my mind with that introduction. I can't wait to hear what happens next.
0: Well, and the thing is... um, All it takes is a second for something to go wrong, as you know. Bill firmly grasped the foam handle with his palms and secured the bottom of the fishing pole against his abdomen, bracing himself. These grouper fish are over a meter long. Some of them are quite large. He knew he was going in for a fight. This impromptu decision made in the heat of the moment would later prove to be a source of regret for Durden as it led to an agonizing experience for him, but also for his family and multiple search crews. Durden's fingers clung desperately to the rod. He'd been thinking, I will not let this thing go overboard. And I can imagine that, it's his new toy. He doesn't wanna lose it on day two. Unfortunately, he'd gone after the fishing rod without putting his boat in neutral. And he was aware of that when he went to the fishing rod. As he pulled the line, the line pulled back at him and it yanked him right out of his flip flops, smack dab in the Gulf of Mexico, which would have maybe been okay but the boat, since it wasn't in neutral, just kept going. And in a daze, he, sc- he scanned his surroundings and tried to gather his wits.
1: Oh, I can't imagine what he was thinking. It probably took, it, it took him a minute for it to sink in as his boat is slowly moving away from him. And he's in the water. That must have happened, you know, like in slow motion, where it was just one small thing after another. And it settled in that he's in real trouble.
0: It's almost like one of those moments where you see your life flashing before your eyes. I could see that you'd be like, oh, this could be, this could be it. This might be my last experience on earth. What a horrible thought to you, by the way.
1: Yeah, especially 25 miles offshore. That's nobody's, he's not swimming back to shore. Or maybe he is. I don't know. <laughs> You'll tell us, I guess.
0: Right. It's, it's pretty daunting. In a daisy scanning his surroundings and gathering his wits. He found himself without a life jacket and the boat he'd fallen from is now a distant memory. His flip-flops remained on the boat's stack. Not like this would be very helpful anyway. And his phone was out of reach as well, which might be another lesson, especially now that cell phones are mostly waterproof, that maybe it should be on your body, especially if you're alone. Because that could have changed his whole situation. Although this was 2016 and I'm not sure that phones were waterproof at that point, but the boat drifted ahead of him gently curving away, teasing close yet frustratingly out of reach. And at first he tried to swim after it, but quickly realized that that was not even possible. He released his pole and just figured, okay, now I'm going to have to make a plan.
1: So after all that, he lost the pole after all. Bummer, insult to injury right there.
0: Right. This is a situation that there is no winning. Reflecting on his life at that moment, Bill Durden remembered a time when he walked into the Navy recruiter's office at the age of 24 and declared his intention to become a pilot. Serving from 1980 to 1996, he'd risen to the rank of lieutenant commander. Now, two decades later, alone in the water, he drew upon his training and experiences of his Navy career. He said, I knew it was damn near impossible to swim to the shoreline. I figured the closer I got, the better my chance of getting rescued. I just had to have a game plan. I had to do something. So I swam really slowly. He started swimming toward the east. He had learned how to drown proof himself in the Navy, um, which is a skill that requires some floating with very minimal effort that you put into it. He's switching between floating on his back and then paddling on his belly with his arms extended. He would just submerge his face for 20 to 30 seconds and then pull up for another breath of air. And then again, like I said, flipped his back. With deliberate and measured movements, he engaged in some dog paddling just to do something to occupy his mind. But every motion was deliberate and cautious. He understood that reaching the shore was an impossible feat given the circumstances. But he was considering the time that it would take his wife, Lisa, to call the Coast Guard to report him missing because she was out of town visiting her mother in Bradenton. So he assumed it'd be at least a few more hours before she would return back to the vacation home and find that he hadn't returned from his day of fishing.
1: And I imagine if he's an experienced fisherman and boater that she probably wouldn't call right away anyway. She might even wait longer than that. A few hours is pretty quick in the scheme of things.
0: It was 1.30ish when he went overboard. Um, yeah, I mean, also, you never know what her plans were for the day. Maybe she was going to go meet a friend afterwards. Maybe she was going to do some shopping, so who knows when she could be making it home? The salt water was stinging his nose and his throat, and his shirt was rubbing uncomfortably against the skin under his arms. and then thirst began to overpower him. I'd also imagine if you're swimming on your abdomen and you're putting your face into the water that you're going to eat salt water in your mouth, no matter what you do, which I'm sure did not help he said that he'd give his life savings for one bottle of water. And I think it's so funny how these dire circumstances that remove all of the things that we need to stay alive suddenly turn the table on what we care about, what's important,
1: right? I remember another story we talked about. I I don't know if I have this exactly right, but I think the survivor said he would have given his right arm or maybe it was his right leg or something for a, a bottle of water. Common theme there.
0: We can all take pause and maybe have a big gulp of water right now in appreciation for those who've been or are lost at sea currently.
1: I wonder how many people at any given time are lost at sea and how you might ever know a number like that. I'm sure there's someone somewhere, if not multiple people.
0: Well, yeah, especially in you know, coastal areas around third world countries or other places where we're immigrants that are trying to flee, a you know, refugees, how would you even be able to identify how many people are on the water at any given time that end up going off the radar? You know, if they're not really accounted for to begin with.
1: Exactly. I'm sure the numbers are much higher than any of us would ever realize.
0: Yeah. If you think about it too long, you might lose sleep for the rest of your life. I don't know. I mean, what can you really do? Anyway, I digress. So,
1: Yeah, we just kind of took a dark turn there. I wasn't, uh, <laughs> wasn't meaning to do that.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe so. He was wishing and hoping a partially empty water bottle or Coke bottle would float by, but he had no luck with that. The Gulf waters were approximately 85 degrees, and a gentle breeze just a few miles an hour wafted over small waves measuring less than a foot. So luckily he had good weather. A few hours passed before nightfall. A boat had passed by Durden, maybe a hundred yards away. He got a glimpse of it and then lost it behind a wave. Another glimpse, another wave. Desperation overcame him and he was flailing his arms and screaming, man overboard, man overboard and over here. But regrettably the boat disappeared into the distance. But that was clearly a low point. He said, after that boat passed me, I knew I was there for the night. And that was a sad, sad feeling.
1: Here's one thing I know from hearing all these um, open water stories. Whenever I'm out on a boat next time, my eyes are going to be trained on the water looking for people yelling and trying to get my attention. Because that's another theme. There's so many stories of boats passing by so quickly and not noticing folks that are struggling in the water. Not on my watch, Casey. If you and I are ever on a boat, we're not going to leave anyone behind.
0: That sounds really good. Also, I think if you're on a boat, having one of those Navy whistles – would be helpful because think about how loud the water is and the wind and then boats are loud. So all of that in combination, it would be really hard to hear someone.
1: That's true. Yeah. I didn't even think about the noise. I was more picturing the visual of somebody, you know, so flush with the surface of the water off in the distance would be hard to see, but yeah, noise would be even better of a cue.
0: Right. At the time of day, he had been dreading had arrived, which is evening Out in the Gulf around 8.30 p.m., it started to get dark and he watched the sunset and the stars emerge in the sky. At this point, Bill had already been doing his unsinkable swim for eight grueling hours. He was exhausted and he was still fantasizing about opening an ice-cold bottle of water. Back at home, Durden's wife Lisa had returned to their vacation house and found that Bill hadn't returned from fishing. She was concerned right away because they had just replaced the boat's battery the day before. So in her mind, it was something, something had happened to the boat. She called Tow, which is a 24-hour boat towing operation to see if Bill had made a phone call to them. And they said, nope, he has not made any contact, and it would be wise to call the Coast Guard right away, which she did. And again, in general, Lisa wouldn't have been concerned about Bill going fishing alone, but um, I think the fact that he wasn't there when she got back was concerning, again, just because of the battery and it was getting dark. So I'm sure he wasn't usually out on the water after dark. Durden did not believe he was facing imminent death, but fear not at him nonetheless, which makes sense. It would be impossible to be out there without any fear, but he did remain calm. He knew that if he didn't remain calm, the chances of him surviving were much more slim. He contemplated the things that he would do if he had the opportunity to, such as purchasing a life vest and spending more time with his friends and family. As Bill was floating at around 12 hours overboard, he heard some splashing, which made him nervous. But then the sound subsided. He started to calm down, and then he noticed that something was sucking on his foot. Um, Remoras are a type of harmless sucker fish, and they started to attach themselves to his feet. And at first, he was trying to get them off, kicking kicking his feet, and then he just kind of gave up and was like, well, the more the merrier, and just let them go for it.
1: He got one of those uh, foot treatments. Have you ever seen where people stick their feet in fish tanks and let them just nibble on their skin? He got a freebie.
0: Pedicure. Pedicure yeah. on the ocean.
1: At least there was some silver lining to his experience there.
0: Maybe he was like, I'm not alone anymore. I've got these sucker fish hanging out with me. Maybe there was some comfort in that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, they were taking care of him, watching out for him.
0: Although I don't know how I would feel if there were suckerfish on my feet. I think you know when you're experiencing something physically difficult and there's something annoying going alongside that physically difficult thing, how much harder it is to remain focused. Like what I'm thinking about is if I'm running really hard and an annoying song comes on, I just, it's like, I can't even take it anymore. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that.
1: Oh, yeah, I can like the example I can think of is if you're in a stressful situation, like say traveling or something, some airport stress, which is enough on its own, but then add in like little kids that are there with you trying to <laughs> navigate that. Yeah, it just it becomes intolerable.
0: Yeah, I guess these suckerfish didn't have anything to say and they weren't doing any whining. So I'm sure that helped a little bit, but but still.
1: Yeah, it's all about your attitude. You know, you'd probably you'd just... Uh, put a lot of effort into uh, befriending the sucker fish and enjoying that experience to the extent <laughs> that you can.
0: Right. Uh, Bill tra- traversed reefs whose sounds resembled bacon sizzling in a pan. He wondered about the mysterious creatures lurking beneath him. Julie, I don't know if you ever had heard of this before, but when I was reading about Bill's story, I was learning about The fact that oceanographers have discovered that they can track the state of health of a reef by soundscaping, which involves Mm. listening to the underwater environment, because studies have shown that the louder the reef is, the more biodiverse it is, and therefore the healthier.
1: Oh, that's so interesting.
0: Yeah. Sounds you might hear include popping, clacking, clicking, and these sounds come from a combination of things like hard shelled creatures scraping against the hard surfaces, fish and fins, fish chattering to one another, mollusks, sorry, drawing themselves around. And then microalgae live in populated reefs and they emit oxygen. And when it reaches the surface, it makes a popping sound.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. I can I can picture, I can remember, you know, like scuba diving or um snorkeling and hearing that kind of popping sound around the reef. And it makes a lot of sense. Living things are going to make a little bit of noise. So the noisier it is, the more life.
0: Yeah, I just think that that would be really interesting because when I think about the ocean, I'm not really always thinking about the noise that the creatures are making within it. At one point, as Bill's floating in the water, something sizable, possibly a dolphin, nudged at his toes, but he couldn't bring himself to look down to see what it was. He was earnestly hoping to avoid any bites that would draw blood because obviously the last thing he wanted to do was attract sharks. He thought he glimpsed one at one point, but it turned out to be 10 inches in length. Durden saw what looked like a helicopter in the night, but it turned out to be a couple miles off. He'd been attempting to move in the eastward direction, but then during the night he realized he'd started going the wrong direction um, due to his fatigue and the dark conditions made it really difficult to navigate.
1: I'm feeling like in a situation like that, even if you're a you know drown-proof Navy-trained swimmer, You're probably just so much at the mercy of wherever the current is going to take you that, you know, trying to navigate and swim in a specific direction is probably pretty futile.
0: Well, especially considering the fact that you're going to lose energy at some point in the ocean is just there's no way of competing that he would not let himself consider death. He ruminated on the fact that this would be such a stupid way to die. I'm sure he was thinking about the way that people would talk about what had happened. I mean, maybe no one would really know truly the story, but he said, I was really pissed at myself for being so dumb. I thought this is too stupid to die over. I'm retiring and I'm going to get at least one of those retirement checks.
1: Touche. Oh yeah. Gosh. He's in the hallucinating stage. Things are not looking good at this point for Bill. I'm so glad that his wife, uh, Fought for him, though, knowing his skills and his background and, and hopefully convinced everyone to give him the benefit of the doubt.
0: Hopefully that gave her some peace, too, in this moment, you know, having that feeling that at least he knows what to do. Bill had a stroke of luck when he found a buoy to hang on to which helped him save some energy, but at that point, like you mentioned, he was in a difficult state. He was dry heaving. He had diarrhea. His tongue was swelling in his mouth, and it was bone dry, of course. His mouth was bone dry. He was drifting in and out of sleep while hanging onto this buoy. Then he heard a noise overhead and looked up. At first, he wasn't sure if he could trust himself given his earlier hallucination, but then realized it was a three-by-three-foot drone, and it kind of hung around for 10 to 15 minutes above his head, and then he was kind of elated because he thought, okay, somebody's actually looking for me. The Coast Guard, they're on their way. But then nothing happened for about 15 to 20 minutes until later he saw a flare in the sky. And shortly thereafter, the roar of an airplane engine, which was the Coast Guard's AC-130 that had spotted him. And then they alerted a helicopter with a flare.
1: Yay for drones. What a great use for a drone. I was um, imagining that it was going to be kind of a, air search with helicopters and airplanes. But wow, you can really be efficient with a few drones covering ground that way.
0: Right. I kind of also wonder if this is something that's becoming more and more commonplace to utilize drones for finding people that are lost in the wilderness. Um, I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. It takes a lot less manpower. And if you can identify the person you're looking for, then send in the search crew. So it's kind of cool. Also, that drone is huge. Have you ever seen a three-by-three-foot drone?
1: Oh, that is huge. Yeah, that's a big drone. Probably a good resolution for finding a needle in a haystack.
0: Right. In the air, Officer Petty Jacob Latour peered out of a small window near the wing of the C-130 plane. As, you know, our man Bill is in the water. He's scanning the water. This is before they, they had put eyes on him, right? For two hours on Thursday morning, all they'd seen was expansive water. 18 miles offshore, southwest of Iropika, Latour refocused his gaze. Out of nowhere, this is what he said. Out of nowhere, I spotted a brightly colored object in the water. As I looked closer, it was someone waving at me. It was Durden, clad in his vibrant yellow fishing shirt. So go Bill, because if he hadn't been wearing a bright yellow fishing shirt, he may never have been found. So at least he had that going for him.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's another uh, lesson to take away, bright clothing.
0: Absolutely. When Bill spotted the Coast Guard, he said, "'I started waving like crazy. "'Oh my God, so much relief. "'It was like an angel appeared in the sky.'" Petty officer Colton Campbell geared up and plunged into the water. They skillfully loaded Durden into a basket and hoisted him into the belly of the helicopter. Campbell said he really didn't seem in bad shape. He was thirsty. Jordan had harbored confidence he'd be located once daylight broke, but the salt water had taken the toll on his body. Also, he was suffering from pretty significant sunburns and he had sores all over his body. Of course, the diarrhea, pounding headache. And yeah, he was thirsty to say the least. Words escaped him slowly and he stumbled through sentences. And the first thing that he asked for was Gatorade.
1: Oh, he's, a, he's he's in Florida after all. The Gators, you know, isn't that where Gatorade comes from?
0: I honestly don't know.
1: I think it is, yeah. Oh. The Florida Gators were the originators of Gatorade.
0: Oh, learn something new every day. <laughs> so at the time of his rescue, Bill had been treading water for 20 hours
1: Wow. And salt water too. I mean, I'm sure there's a huge difference for how long you can last treading water in fresh water versus salt water, just pulling the fluids out of him.
0: Right. And also if I was in fresh water, I would just be drinking right out of the lake. If I was in a mm-hmm. lake or, you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. His wife, Lisa was there to greet him when he reached the shore and she expressed her love for him. And he of course reciprocated the sentiment. His sister was also there. She had driven through the night from Atlanta once on land, Durden called his son and expressed his gratitude to all the search teams. He initially didn't go to the hospital. He just wanted to go to his bed. But after sleeping for 13 hours, he awakened with difficulty speaking and breathing, and Lisa just took him to the hospital.
1: He probably needed some IV fluids or some sort of a, you know, electrolyte fluid rebalance.
0: Right. And I can't imagine... I mean, I can see where Bill was coming from, but I also wonder how clear he was thinking in that moment, you know, after being in such an exposing condition for that long of a period of time. In the following days, doctors closely monitored him for signs of exposure and dehydration while tending to his sores that dotted his body and his sunburn. Durden affirmed his intention to return to the water, but he made a solemn promise to himself that he would never venture out for fishing alone again. Shortly after his rescue bill said for the last couple of nights, when the sun goes down, I get knots in my stomach, but I'll go back out on the boat. I just won't go alone. Today, I bought four automatic self-inflating life vests, and I'm going to buy some other rescue equipment. I'm so thankful to the Coast Guard. They're the reason I'm here. I feel grateful to be alive, and I want to not think about it for a while. Uh, Bill attributed his survival to his naval training. And if you would like to watch Bill's rescue, the USCG released a video on the dramatic helicopter rescue on their Twitter page, and we will link that in the show notes for you.
1: That's a great story that i'm so excited that he was found after 20 hours although i'm sure it was the longest 20 hours of his life it makes me think about um i don't know life vests or pfds now nowadays when i've been on a sailboat recently the kind of you know self-inflating life vests that are available you can put that on and you forget it's even on it's not like the big clunky you know foam orange over the neck style life jackets that you know were the things available when we were kids. You can throw on a PFD and put a jacket over it, forget it's even there. So in a situation like that seems like no reason why you shouldn't just be wearing one.
0: Right. And I'm sure that anyone who's experienced anything like Bill would understand that it's ridiculous not to. I think it's just so easy to think nothing's going to happen. It's going to be fine. But of course, you and I know working in medicine, especially in the urgent care setting, that it really doesn't take a whole lot for something to happen. Um, my brother totally makes fun of me all the time. He, he asks me if I am going to make my kids wear helmets to throw the football to one another. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, there are just certain things that I'm not willing to risk, you know? So yeah,
1: especially when you see it every day, you know, and so much of what we see is preventable stuff. I mean, yeah, it is one thing to like make your kids wear a helmet walking down the road to school or something like that. But yeah. Uh, uh, what is the phrase? Um, uh, something is bliss. Ignorance. Oh, yeah. Ignorance. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Yep.
0: Well, um, you know, my brother's the kind of person that doesn't prepare for things sometimes and somehow he just miraculously makes it out just fine. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I've told you some stories before, but I'll just briefly remind you of a story that I told you before. We were climbing up on the Great Northern, and he hadn't been doing any type of activity for a long time. And his leg was hurting or something. He developed a tendonitis. And, I mean, the Northern is kind of a gruel. It's not just a place that – it's not like walking up a hill where you're going to see a lot of other people – And there's some exposure and he was walking like he was going to, like an old man, like he was going to fall right off the mountain. And he told me, oh, just go ahead. Just leave me up here. I'll be fine. Come back to the trailhead
1: in a couple of hours. He was serious. I do remember that story. Just leave me. Go on without me. I'll be fine. Tell my family I love them.
0: I just could totally see him toppling off of the mountain. I was like, you are special. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> But in any case, you know, some people aren't prepared and nothing ever happens. And then others are insanely prepared and they are ill fated. It's almost yes. like the person that smokes for 70 years and lives till they're 99 and versus the other person who never smokes a day in their life and gets lung cancer or something like that. But I mean.
1: Or it reminds me when I used to live up in Kalispell, I worked for a timber company and we were out in the, on the forest working all day and company policy, you got to wear a hard hat, but you know, once every 10 years might, something might fall on your head. We're not like logging. We're just walking through the forest, just hiking, maybe cruising timber, setting up, um, riparian management areas, flagging and painting. And there was one uh, forester we worked with who always wore a hard hat. Nobody else did. And we always made fun of him because he was such a real (laughs) follower. But like once a month, something would fall on his head. And he was like, well, of course I'm wearing a hard hat. Why wouldn't I? And then nothing ever happened to any of the rest of us.
0: Maybe hard hats just need to be part of your outdoor attire when you go hiking. Just I guess well. so.
1: I guess so. You know they're nice sun visors too. It could be worse. Could be worse. Uh,
0: yeah. Anyway, as we come to the end of this gripping episode, especially our commentating at the end, we hope you were inspired by Bill Durden's survival story. His journey serves as a testament to the strength of the human spirit. I mean, come on, who holds on that long? It's impressive. Before we wrap up, we would like to ask for your support in spreading the word about The Crux True Survival Stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to visit our Instagram page at The Crux Podcast. We encourage you to share our latest post on your stories that helps us reach more fellow survival enthusiasts and storytellers. And if you haven't already, please consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us continue bringing you compelling survival stories. If you have any survival stories you'd like to share with us or topics you'd like us to explore, feel free to write us at thecorrectsurvival at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for your unwavering support. We're a small team. We have big aspirations. We're always striving to bring you stories that resonate. Your weekly tuning in means the world to us. And we're deeply grateful for your listening. And we hope that you have a fantastic week. And until next time, stay safe and stay alive out there.
1: Thanks for a good story today, Casey. Have a great week. Oh, anytime, Julie, anytime.